Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Songhees and the Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. And welcome to the conclusion of our four-part series, Portrait of a Marriage, where my partner Ruben Anderson and I dissect and update an article I wrote in 2017 about the dynamics of a heterosexual marriage where the woman is an avoidant attacher and the man is more anxious. As as we've said in uh, the past three episodes, a lot has changed since this was published. We are not only more emotionally mature people now, but... um, Our neurobiology, I should say our neurobiologies, have changed significantly. My practice as a somatic attachment therapy practitioner, that has changed me for sure. Um, I definitely deepen through that interpersonal neurobiology that happens in a therapeutic space. Um, I've continued on to more trainings and certifications and somatics and mind-body connection work. Those have certainly transformed how my nervous system works and just practice, you know, many years of practice together, very intentional, very attuned, very observant, have changed things. And Ruben has thoughtfully, meaningfully, sometimes doggedly engaged in the relational work I asked him to do. Um, So he has gone to therapy with more somatically oriented practitioners. He has spent time developing friendships where they talk about more than just their common interests. He gets to share and also support others around relationships and anxieties, life planning, all of it. So I am no longer the locus of his entire emotional life. And that is a major relief for me. It creates a lot of spaciousness for me to love him better. I've also reduced the size of my social sphere and the demands of my work. And I know not everybody can do this, so I'm totally aware of the kind of privilege it takes to be able to do that. But I have to be honest with you. I have mindfully chosen to reduce the number of significant relationships where I'm a main emotional support. First of all, you know, I'm probably just not naturally inclined or conducive to that. It takes a lot of work, though I would say more so in the past when I was more avoidantly, I'd say, identified. Like that was like kind of a lot of my personality. Um, But even though I have more capacity and I am better at being an emotional support now, I realize the importance of having limits. So as a woman at midlife, now firmly in perimenopause, I simply do not have the estrogen required to nurture as many people and projects as I used to. That's just a physical, cognitive, Again, it's a biological limit that I've just had to accept. And honestly, I've always looked forward to aging. And so I happily accept accept that. But it's taken some work because my metabolic set point has been to be very generative, very available, very involved. So I've really had to choose quality over quantity in 
every aspect of my life, particularly though relevant to this podcast, how I spend my time and who I choose to spend it with, where I'm investing um, my energy. I've, I've had to make hard choices to prioritize my relationship with my man and with my child. And I spend a lot less time and energy in a primary support role for friends and clients. So that's not to say that actually my life has gotten smaller. I have to say it really hasn't. I still meet regularly with friends. I am still involved in community and activism. I still generate new and exciting projects for myself to work on. Just less. So it really is a less is more philosophy. And even though I've cut out probably 50% of my physical, emotional, mental obligations, my life is still full. I think as a person whose whole system was conditioned by avoidant attachment, I couldn't feel how fatigued I was. I couldn't feel how tapped out I was. My, my default mode was always to just push through, work harder, try harder, and have what my mom used to call crash and burn days. Anyway, I have to say, I've never been happier. I've never been more fulfilled. I've never felt more connected. I've never felt more love. I get more out of the less, if that makes sense, because I'm able to be more present and when I'm aware of my limits and capacities and my own self-regulation, I can model that attunement better. And it just makes relationships more clear. And uh, when I maintain connection with my own voice and choice and agency, when I stop myself from saying yes, when I actually want to say no, or I think I probably should say no, I have a lot more resilience overall. I just, I just have a lot more resilience somatically, emotionally, mentally. And I give a lot of credit to my own ongoing work as well with a somatically oriented therapist and our couples therapist, and as well as like conscious continued intentional, I don't know, I guess what they used to call stress management, you know, like activities like the therapeutic tremor for which I'm a provider. All this to say, it feels a bit strange to read my own words from six years ago. Um, I not only feel like such a different person, I just am a different person. I inhabit a new body with new capacities and also just different capacities, different limits. My emotional maturity is so much greater than when I wrote this article. I'm more patient. I'm more empathetic, more attuned. I'm, I'm securely attached. And I've, you know, if you've heard me talk about the, um, is it mypersonality.net or yourpersonality.net? I always get them mixed up. But anyway, the one where I've cited before in the show notes where you can track your attachment uh, with specific relationships over time, the data is there that I, I, I am a different person, securely attached um, in the vast majority of relationships. And uh, I'm, I'm just... I'm just wiser. I'm just wiser. As I said, I love aging. I'm 47 turning 48. And I cannot wait for 50. I cannot wait for 60, 70, all the rest of it. Anyway, all of this has come to fruition only after a number of years of struggle and conflict and in some cases, painful endings, to be frank. And so I'm going to read the final third of the article now where I've offered advice for navigating conflict together 
which has proven very effective for Ruben and I, and then Ruben will join me at the end for afterthoughts. So let's dive back in. If you're in an anxious avoidant dynamic right now, you need help right now. You don't have time to consider how internalized modes of oppression are playing out in your marriage. But I think it's worth restating, patriarchy says that women who aren't emotionally nurturing, sexually available, and connection-oriented are basically bitches. Worse than that, they can be portrayed as quote-unquote dykes or gold diggers. A major challenge in this anxious avoidance scenario is parsing out what is patriarchy and what is just being in a relationship. So let me restate that. It's hard to figure out what we should be fighting to change about the world and what we should be fighting to change about our marriage. So in our case, Ruben and I had to unpack so many things about abandonment, trauma, attachment, and a culture of patriarchy and colonialism. We had to do all that just to arrive at a place from which to begin moving forward in our marriage. So you're not defective because you can't find grace and ease in your relationship or within yourself. It's just super hard and it's neurobiological. You're fighting against extremely powerful inner, outer, cultural, and systemic forces that actively undermine your impulse to find security within yourself and with each other. It takes practice and tenacity and a willingness to feel everything at all the scales. And for me anyway, it took the nurturance of a deep sense of fuck you towards systemic oppression that reinforced the worst parts of me and the intergenerational trauma that taught me to hurt the ones that I love. It's helped our marriage to turn sideways into the light as the poem goes and stand shoulder to shoulder, appealing to grace and fighting for the common good. Here are some top line items that can provide quite a lot of relief and a basic framework for now. You'll probably wanna get some therapeutic help either for yourself or for both of you in the relationship in order to move through the places of impasse in your relationship. But let's start with this. Needs are part of being fully human. Avoidant attachers have shut down so much normal, healthy neurobiological functioning that their brains literally can't understand what all the fuss is about. It's really easy to perceive and recommend that an avoidant attacher simply meet the need for connection with an anxious attacher in order to de-escalate a situation and get back into what is sometimes called the resiliency zone. But avoidant attachers often just don't relate to needs. They don't have a healthy understanding of what needs even are, much less recognize needs as something that everybody has, are normal, natural, and required to fill our humanness. As children, avoidant attachers learn to act as if they were already getting what they needed, even though they weren't. Remember that avoidant attachers have had a lifetime of practice turning off all the biological systems that would give them the capacity to connect in a triggering situation, even if they wanted to. Instead, they've learned to adopt a mask of okayness. 
After years of wearing the mask of okay, they've become quite adept at managing triggering situations without any awareness at all that their brain and body are systematically shutting down. I remember discovering this at a nonviolent communication workshop for couples called Speak to Me Like You Love Me with this phenomenal human, Rochelle Lamb. Under each feeling or emotion is an unmet need, she said. Carmen, when you feel angry at Ruben about this, what need is not being met for you? I scanned a page in front of me that listed an inventory of universal needs. Nothing registered. I was completely blank. There was no sadness or longing or inspiration or even recognition. None of the words resonated for me. It was like they meant nothing to me. The only one that sounded kind of nice to me was the word space. Not only that, a lot of the words embarrassed me. Like what kind of person would identify with a statement as feeble as I have a need for companionship? Honestly, I felt revulsion at the notion of having needs, never mind declaring them. Because here's the thing, when your default is that your needs will never be met, eventually it's just a hassle to have needs. If you're a strong, competent, avoidant female, having needs just adds one more thing to your to-do list of things to manage. You're probably already having to manage everyone else's needs. So the thought of having your own is supremely irritating and a waste of time. How about this? You might think, how about everyone just handle their own fucking needs? Even if there had been a need I could identify as logically reasonable for me to have, I'd never have admitted to it, because what if it was used against me sometime? If I told my husband I felt a need for inclusion, then he would know. And then he might fake wanting to include me in things. Or he might exclude me from things just to get back at me for something. Maybe he'd weaponize that knowledge and wield it over me somehow. Can you hear the depth of mistrust here? It's pretty fucked up, right? But it comes from experience. And in that case, not necessarily from experiences I'd had with my husband specifically, but much earlier in my life. And it was so stressful at that time that my brain and my body started to adapt in order to survive in that environment. So not fucked up at all, actually, born out from very valid fears, actually, a rather effective survival strategy, in fact, but just not very useful when you're trying to create a secure couple bubble with your partner. It's not a very pro-relationship stance, you might say, to assume that you need to constantly protect yourself from possible harm inflicted by your primary love relationship. Fortifying oneself against having normal, healthy, natural human needs cuts us off from our humanity and from the sweetness of interdependence. It closes off the potential for a restful sense of security within a relationship. I'm just taking a moment to feel sad for my younger selves, my earlier self as a young wife. Never think of myself in that identity, but that's what I was. 
I was somebody who'd been terribly hurt and betrayed in every primary relationship I'd ever had. So I have a lot of compassion for the self that felt that fortified and a lot of gratitude for her taking the risk to be truly intimate. Okay, back to it. What avoidant attachers need to understand is that needs are like eating. We might think, I don't really have a need for companionship. With the right person, it might be my preference, but I'd be fine without it. Yeah, we would be fine not eating for a full day. We wouldn't die. It might be our preference to eat, but we'd be fine for a day without food. However, not eating for a day is the first step to starvation. One day leads to the next, a little less fine, a little less fine, a little less fine, until one day you die. It took me a long time to even relate to the concept of having needs and then even longer to identify which ones were unmet in my marriage and then even longer to feel entitled to my needs and much longer before I could trust that they might be met by my husband. It also took a long time before I could accept my husband's needs without resenting them. And then longer still before I could come to terms with the idea that I might perhaps somehow, oh, I don't know, be responsible for meeting my husband's needs. Okay, sidebar here. I know this is like very hard to hear and uh, goes, it flies in the face of so much pop psychology that it's like, you have to love yourself first. You have to, you know, you're responsible for making, meeting your own needs. To a certain extent, I get it. I agree with that. But over time, as I've deepened in my understanding and practice of secure attachment principles, I have totally recognized like, oh, actually, no, interpersonal neurobiology means that I have impact. And this is a very helpful thing, I think, also in our anti-racist practice. When we recognize without feeling a ton of like shame and guilt that like, yep, We have impact on others and other people are in our care and we have to be careful in our manner of approach with the relationship. It makes sense that we would do that with our primary partners and our beloveds as well. So I haven't read it yet. Stan Tatkin has a new book coming out called um, In Each Other's Care. And even though I have a lot of problems with Stan's work in many ways and had experiences with him, um, seeing him in live demos where he just like patriarchy way over his head. Um, However, there are some concepts that are so helpful and being in each other's care, your partner being in your care and you being responsible for meeting their needs, that is part of, that's part and parcel of it. That is the deal. If you're like, yes, I'm going to be in a secure relationship with this person and they're going to be my primary attachment partner we are responsible for our, our, our partner's needs, not entirely for their feelings, but it's partially up to us to meet their needs for safeness and security and feeling seen and soothed. Okay, back to the article. From the perspective of an avoidant woman, after years of not being able to rely on primary relationships to put her needs before theirs at key moments, while also living in a world that continuously subsumes and negates her needs, 
needs become energy drains and liabilities, not to mention the problematics of reinforcing this patriarchal notion that women exist to meet the needs of men and have a duty to do so. That is bullshit. And it was like not something I was prepared to consider in 2017. But I needed to remind myself that although my husband sometimes perpetuates patriarchy, he is not patriarchy. It wasn't fair to be angry at him personally all the time. And it was cruel to withhold connection from him when I was, in fact, just wanting to withdraw myself from patriarchy at large. And no, it wasn't fair that I had to teach him how to not perpetuate patriarchy, but there aren't really very many places for men to turn to. So here we are. Fortunately, uh, he did take a great course with uh, Bear a Bear on learning patriarchy and, um, you know, really dove deep. This is me sidebarring again, really dove deep into bell hooks and uh, listened to black socialist feminists about patriarchy. Um, so highly recommend that if you are a uh, cis hetero man listening. Oh, and also, okay, see, I talk about it right here in the article. <laughs> Back to the article. This is where Nora Samran's excellent article, The Opposite of Rape Culture is Nurturance Culture, was a real turning point for us as a couple. As an anxious attacher, my husband is patriarchally oppressed in his own way. Who, aside from our therapist, could he talk to about his feelings and his fear of abandonment? There's a very narrow range of acceptable emotions for men in white Western society. They're allowed to fall somewhere on a spectrum between angry, horny, or triumphant. I, I say white Western culture. I, I think it's generally in Western culture, but there may be a different range in um, communities of color. I'm not sure. In patriarchal culture generally, male feelings equals fragility, equals feminine, equals must be destroyed. And of course, I had spent so much time emasculating my husband, belittling his needs, diminishing them, sarcastically mocking them or assessing them, ranking them against my own, judging them, ignoring them, using them as weapons against him, that it wasn't easy for us to just go, oh, Carmen had that wrong. <laughs> like, oops, let's start over. Oh, she's mad at patriarchy, not at Reuben. Anxious attachers can feel tremendous shame, partly because their spouse shames or gaslights them, and partly because of an inherent sense of less than or not enoughness exacerbated by the verbal and nonverbal cues of the avoidant partner. For an anxiously attached man, there is a palpable desire to connect, but generally only one locus of fulfillment for that desire, his wife. She becomes his entire world of connection. Whereas she can go out into the world and regularly exchange hugs, kisses, emotional disclosure, and empathy, even sometimes within relatively light relationships with female colleagues or even, damn, even strangers, the most he can hope for is a handshake at work and from his hens, friends, you know, maybe a hug with like a really a sort of smack on the back while they're at it. So words of comfort, encouragement, compassion, and support are readily available to most women, avoidant or not, even in the supposedly disconnecting online world of social media. But men, however, are extremely lucky to find a safe space in real life or online 
in which to say, I feel rejected and sad. Both anxious and avoidant attachers have good reasons to associate having needs with being used or manipulated or perceived as weak or defective. So compassion, people. We could all use a little more of it. Deconstructing patriarchy within a marriage is really hard stuff. So another headline point here. All of the attachment styles are natural, common, and understandable. She is avoidant because he is clawing at her, right? He is anxious because she's ghosting him emotionally or gaslighting him. Makes sense. They're each perceiving reality correctly, but their responses are born of trauma, and therefore they make everything worse and even harder than it should be. Certain relationships can bring out the best in us and others the worst. We can have a generally secure relationship with colleagues and family while in an anxious avoidant dynamic with our partner. Relationships are complex and so are people. So if you are listening along, that's reading this, but listening along, cut yourself some slack, right? You're trying, you're here. If you're listening, you are doing the best you can right now. And with practice, you will do it even better. Your marriage can have good days and bad days, and your attachment style can shift and evolve. There are skills of self-regulation, pattern interruption, and effective fighting that can be learned and that help reduce the hypervigilance of your attachment system. But first things first, both partners are in need of some serious nervous system regulation first. So just like the anxious attacher, in a triggering situation, the avoidant partner's amygdala gets a whiff of threat and their hypothalamus sends the signal to the adrenals and the pituitary to unleash stress chemicals in the body. The dorsal motor vagal complex constricts the breath and blood flow and the heart starts to beat more rapidly. So for me, as an avoidant attacher, it feels like complete system failure when we are in conflict. I call it going into the concrete box. So in these moments, something more than just tuning out is happening to me. All at once, thought disappears. Sometimes I just can't stop yawning. I feel so heavy, like I'm walking through water at the bottom of the ocean, or like all my energy is drained away, just like I'm in a, I'm a leaky bucket. Sometimes I feel really cold and I often start shivering. Ruben will ask me a question and I can't formulate a full thought, much less a reasonable or coherent sentence. I'm just numb. Sometimes I can't even really understand what he's saying. And then I get angry at him for making me feel stupid or making me work hard to repair with him. Um, sometimes his tone or the length of time he's talking at me feels so overwhelming. I have literally fallen asleep in the middle of an argument while Ruben was talking to me. So this is called hypoarousal when the body slows down because it anticipates a period of deprivation. Basically, it's going into like death preparation. Hypoarousal erects these impenetrable walls around me. So Good luck trying to meet your partner's need when you're stuck in a concrete box. 
Now for Reuben, his anxiety ratchets up really quickly and it leads to catastrophizing within minutes, if not seconds of a whiff of conflict. His thoughts whiz like a tornado in his head. He's questioning whether this signals the end of our relationship, whether he needs to find a new place to sleep tonight. He mentally winds up like in his mind, moving home with his parents before I've even managed to string a sentence together. He says he can feel the pressure build up in the back of his head like it's going to explode. His torso is tense and tight, and all he wants is resolution now. He wants to know, is this the end? So this is hyperarousal. <laughs> hyperarousal is this heightened state of anxiety caused by a sense of impending threat, and it tosses Reuben around like a rag doll. So when this happens, it's so hard to do, easy to say, so hard to do, we have to stop and breathe. We have to stay in the body and try to track that this is happening. So the first thing is just like stop, notice what's happening, maybe name it to yourself. So what I mean is self-regulation can only occur if you are noticing what's happening in your body. So you could start by just touching the part of your body that feels most activated or absent, um, the part of your body that's most obvious to you. And you might name any emotion you're aware of that seems associated with the sensation you feel. So for instance, if your heart is beating really fast, you might just put your palm over your chest and just say quietly to yourself or to your partner, oh yeah, okay, that's panic. Sometimes naming a feeling can reduce the sensation just a little bit, like just enough for you to process the next piece of information. Because it's like your body is screaming at you and once you say, I hear you, both verbally and through touch, then your body doesn't have to yell so loudly. If you don't feel like you're in your body at all, you could hug yourself like with one hand under your left armpit and maybe the left arm like squeezing the upper part of your right arm. And you would just breathe really deliberately and you could just say to yourself, okay, this is just what's happening right now in my body. You don't have to name it, you just notice it. Okay, this is what's happening. So this can help you locate yourself and bring yourself back into this felt sense awareness of where your body is at. Okay, sidebar, this is good data because it gives you a sense of how long you can be in conflict. I don't know if I get to this eventually, but basically the autonomic nervous system can handle a maximum of like 20 minutes of stress before it's gonna go into some kind of shutdown or like very unpredictable, catastrophic um, next course of action. But it, it can't hang out in this threat response for very long. This is, again, why I think it's Dan Tatkin who says, like, if your fight is going to go for more than 10 minutes, you just have to down tools. Because after 10 minutes, all you're doing is eroding your neurobiology and your um, bond. So this is the first part. If you're noticing sensation, symptoms, or you are becoming absent from the conversation, you need to slow down, notice that, and then basically like set the timer. Okay, back to the article. It can be really difficult to reach for awareness of your needs when you are in a state of hypo or hyper arousal. 
So sometimes it helps to take like four breaths to do a request. So it goes something like this. You would say like one word per breath and you can do this um, out loud or just in your head, but like this is the kind of pace. So in the first breath, you would just say I. And the second breath, you would say want or need or request. And the next breath, you'd say some. And then the next breath, you're kind of waiting for it. What do you want? And you just like intuitively let the first thing that comes to mind come out of your mouth. And you're not committed to that first thing. You're just trying it on. And this is just a method of slowing down to help us remember that our state is not fixed. And maybe we can shift and de-escalate the situation. But it's easier to do that if we can get to the bottom of how we're actually feeling. We'll uncover our actual true needs a little quicker. So you take four breaths. I want some space <laughs> or whatever it is. Here's a little bonus tip, divert. Diversion may feel erasing for the anxious attacher, but if your dynamic can manage it, you may want to incorporate some distraction into the conversation as a way to discharge excess energy and manage this hypo or hyperarousal. So research has shown that avoidant attachers are often better at expressing emotion and empathizing when they're distracted by an activity. So this explains why I can go blank when my husband asked me point blank to tell him why I love him, but it's easier for me if I'm like walking or doing dishes. Like I'm an articulate person, sometimes perhaps even eloquent, <laughs> but when asked directly to name qualities about my husband that I love, I feel a tremendous amount of pressure and I feel put on the spot. It's like my mind is like a freshly washed chalkboard. It's just a clean slate, nothing new can stick. And so diversion tactics while talking things over um, might include like repetitive or familiar tasks like folding laundry or making supper or doing the dishes or even going for a drive, like not in stressful traffic. But if the anxious attacher can comfortably self-soothe for long enough, it can sometimes help the avoidant attacher to do an activity while they sort of think things over and gather their thoughts. It should be something really short and time-bound with an agreed-upon commitment to return to the conversation at a specific time. So like, I like to take a shower and wash my hair, and that's about the time, the sort of a period of time that Ruben can wait and so I try not to push it too far beyond that. This is like a massive improvement over um, a few years prior when I would like regularly storm out of an argument or I'd like lock myself in the bathroom and he would bang on the door and yell at me through it. Bad scene, bad news. Now, when I say I need a shower, now we don't have to go through the agreement so much, but it's like, I need a shower. We'll talk when we get out. And he knows this is like a 15 minute pause for me to discharge some of the stress and try to mobilize, get my arms and legs back on and um, gather some words. Couples therapy, you know, that can go either way. Some people find it puts them on the spot where some people find it's nice to have a third person to um, 
facilitate. As an avoidant attacher, I like going to couples therapy if I can talk to our counselor with Ruben beside me out of my line of sight, though she's always trying to get us to get in each other's eyes and look at each other, which we can do easily now. At times when I feel like Ruben isn't hearing me, it's easier for me to show Ruben what's going on for me rather than tell him directly or explain it to someone else. From the start of our relationship, I was very open with Ruben about my history of two sexual assaults and uh, date rape at ages 14, 16, and 23, respectively. And he had always been sensitive and supportive and understanding. But when my trauma response would come up within our marriage, it seemed like he just forgot about it all. So to Ruben, because normally I would always seem so together and so self-assured and so clear and vocal about my preferences and boundaries, I didn't appear fearful or traumatized. So when I told our counselor at the time, Sarah, in detail, about each of my sexual assaults and how they've impacted me, it was like I was able to speak to Ruben through a surrogate. And it created a bit of distance that enabled me to feel more free and be a bit more real and raw and emotionally present, knowing that Sarah would take care of his needs. Because I knew he'd be devastated at hearing my pain and I just, I didn't have it in me to comfort him while I was talking about being violated. And I also knew he needed to be cared for while hearing these really shattering stories. Sidebar here, I also knew he was impacted by those things and I just did not have it in me to address how he was being impacted by my trauma. I needed to be centered for a while and that needed to take some time. Okay, but back to the article. So when you're not in total shit hitting the fan mode, um, but still not quite functional, what then when it comes to conflict? So how do we move to de-escalate when fairly normal protest behavior is in play in a marriage. So we're talking here about times when you're not in the throes of a major trauma response and you are able to access some self-awareness, you're able to self-regulate a bit and feel motivated enough to maintain the connection. So the first thing is, is be available. It's really like, it's that simple. So that means <clears throat> avoidant partner, don't leave the room while your partner is talking, don't curtail conversation with fine, okay, fine, that kind of thing. Don't leave them hanging and waiting for you to return their call. Don't leave the house with no notice and no return time. Don't be late without calling, right? So if you need to, go ahead and agree ahead of time if pre-written texts like um, in a meeting, call you right back, heart emoji is acceptable. Um, if your partner's trying to reach you during the day, find out what being available means to your partner and then commit to that in a way that, you know, is as consistent as possible. And let's be honest, if you have avoidant tendencies, there's a high likelihood that you also have some asshole tendencies at times, like being self-absorbed and self-justifying. There, I said it. I admit it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Notice 
when you're being an asshole in your mind, like blaming your partner for not knowing that you need your space right now. Or if you notice you're withdrawing, like breathe, self-regulate a bit, and then just use your words, communicate with them. Again, I say this with love, right? It takes one to know one. So for instance, after you've self-regulated, tell your partner that although you do appreciate that they want to support your writing, let's say, you'd prefer not to be interrupted when you're typing, even if it's to be offered a cup of tea and a kiss on the head. So decide together how often you should take a writing break during which you can reconnect. And then what kind of reconnection would feel good for each of you? And it probably won't match. But together, you can find a middle ground instead of drifting apart into two opposing camps. And now, here's the flip side. Give some space. So if you are the anxious partner, you got to work hard on your self-soothing skills so you can be comfortable when your partner requests or takes space. So Ruben found John Kabat-Zinn's meditations, uh, along with the book Full Catastrophe Living, to be very helpful here. I like somatic experiencing techniques, many of which are described in Peter Levine's book, Waking the Tiger, but there are many um, indigenous and uh, black and people of color um, uh, who are practicing somatic experiencing now and lots of books, lots more books anyway available. So learning to give your partner space is probably the major work required of the anxiously attached person. And the avoidant partner will need to recognize that the skill of self-regulation is built just like muscles or musical ability. Practice is required, and you don't usually notice a difference overnight. So you have to celebrate the small successes. Patriarchy makes it difficult for women to want space without guilt. We're told that not only do we not have a right to our own bodies, we can't really trust our body signals anyway. You know, are we sure we need space? Maybe we just need chocolate or wine or that kind of thing, right? It's very dismissive. When an avoidant woman says she needs space, oh my God, please, for the love of all things holy, give it to her. Give it to her without questioning whether it's what she really needs or whether it's good for her or whether she should, you know, practice more connection and attunement because that would be more secure because after all, she's avoidant and connection is part of being fully human. Yeah, we, we know, we get it, but don't fucking do that. Space is also a natural, normal human need, even for women. <laughs> so when we... The sidebar, when we defy the heteronormative standards for women, meaning when we are not the giant tit of nurturance constantly, when we do not want to be connected and we are sort of being um, unexpectedly uh, reserved or need that space, we are not defective in our womanhood for wanting that, okay? It doesn't mean that we are not nurturing. Space is also a natural, normal human need. Every minute beyond the request during which an anxious attacher is expanding on, clarifying, restating, adding to, or in any other way, continuing to communicate about the topic at hand, to the avoidant attacher, every minute 
is an erosion of trust. You're proving to her that you don't really value her needs as equal to your own. She just told you what she needed and here you are still taking and still denying her need. So if the avoidant attacher doesn't say something to the effect of, I hear what you're saying, it makes sense to me, it's important and valid, and I promise to remain engaged after a short break for nervous system regulation, then they run the risk of exacerbating the anxious attachers' distress. So this could even be like a power play or at the very least a form of withholding. So space needs to be both granted and taken respectfully and with compassion. So secure attachment, again, sidebar, doesn't mean you are staying in constant contact. It means you're consistent and needing space to self-regulate or gather thoughts or blow off steam and being consistent in your agreement to return to each other is secure attachment in action. Okay, second kind of big top line idea here. Take responsibility for your partner's sense of security. Back to you, avoidant partner. Yes, you are responsible for your partner's sense of security. You've agreed to be in an intimate relationship with another human being. So therefore, by the very nature of being a mammal that has only survived infancy by the grace of someone meeting your basic needs and hopefully more, and by only learning how to love because someone else hopefully loved you, your brain and physiology have evolved towards interdependence. And so you, yes, you are responsible for holding up your end of this bargain. That's just how humans are made. Learning this is how you become fully human. You know, babies don't come out walking and talking and finding food. So everything in our biology is geared towards survival within a group. Even if our group is loosely associated, that basic wiring never changes. And so biologically speaking, our partners regulate our heart rate and our blood pressure and even our breathing. We are dependent on them. It's just a fact. We're not separate from each other. So their well-being is our work. Again, okay, sidebarring a bit, not that you're responsible for all their feelings, but their sense of security is partly yours to take on. Regardless of whether you're avoidant or anxious, just because you've experienced trauma that makes it difficult for you to feel securely connected doesn't mean you've transcended the need, nor does it absolve you from the obligation to provide a healthy, secure environment for your partner. Your trauma doesn't give you a license to traumatize someone else. True partnership means you are each responsible for the other's sense of security. And so careful here, I don't mean you are to blame for each other's sense of security or lack of it. I mean you have a duty of care to each other's sense of security in the relationship. So your needs must take into account your partner's well-being as well. So what we're trying to do in conflict now is flip the switch and reduce our response time. So it's helpful to keep in mind that you aren't arguing with your partner, you're arguing with their wound. So imagine they are the age 
at which you suspect their wound was inflicted, the wound that's like activated at this time. That is who you're arguing with. So would you really expect a six-year-old to self-soothe and stop being so like needy for attention, right? Would you really hold out and make an eight-year-old demonstrate deep remorse and eloquent apology for slighting you before you speak to them again? Would you really expect an engaged, emotionally deep two-hour dialogue from a 12-year-old who's frozen with fear about possibly losing you or who's worried that their desire for reassurance is like immature? So if you can hold the image of your partner as a child, you'll have a better chance of switching your empathy switch mid-argument. If you can reduce your response time, meaning the amount of time between the distress cycle trigger and meeting the need, you'll lower the risk of being harmed, doing harm, and damaging your relationship. Yeah, none of us can ever unbecome the 5 or 10 or 15 or 20-year-old we once were. They each live in our muscles and bones and our cellular memory. They're the gatekeepers to our wounds, and they're present in every argument where there's a threat to our sense of safety or security or identity or self-worth. So each partner has to decide that they want to do better and then compassionately communicate their needs to the other and explicitly reinforce their desire to meet the need of the other. So you could say things like, I hear what you're saying and your feelings are important to me. Or you could say, that's really hard to hear because that wasn't my intention, but I understand that you can't experience my intentions, only my impact and the feelings you're having right now. It makes sense to me that you're feeling that way. In the early days, I would say things like, I need a couple minutes here because I'm also in my feelings right now, but I want you to know that I do want to meet your need for XYZ. I just, I have to find my way to a less agitated state first. Also, fight honorably. So if you only remember three things from this whole article or podcast, pray let them be these, okay? This is how to fight with harm reduction in mind. So don't generalize, don't bring up the past, don't debate. That's it. So number one, don't generalize, just meet the need. So like, guess what? Telling your partner that they're a terrible communicator is terrible communication. <laughs> when you're fighting, you got to be specific. So you have to speak from the I and use feeling words. So when you don't call to say you'll be late, I feel. Or when you say, I'm not cut out for marriage, I feel. Or when you forgot to run the errand I asked for, I felt. So if you're extrapolating from the situation to cast some mythic light of truth on like similar scenarios in your relationship, you're in trouble. Like if you're starting sentences with you, you're in trouble. If you're saying things like always and never, you're in trouble. <laughs> you got to back up. You got to breathe. You got to contain. You got to slow down. So remind your partner and yourself that their needs do matter by asking questions 
and try to stay open to the possibility that there might be just a misunderstanding here, right? You think? And be willing to at least consider how you might make them feel more secure in this moment. So no generalizing. Okay, number two, don't bring up the past. Just meet the need. So if you spend time trying to reconstruct other points in time, in other contexts, different circumstances that are reminding you of this one, if you're going to waste energy attempting to illustrate how they're relevant to the situation, honestly, at that point, you don't have any inner resources available to you to attend to what's happening right now. Like you are elsewhere and you need to get up to speed. The past isn't fixable. It can't be undone. You're going to have to give up the grudge or just choose to be pro-relationship. So put the we before me, just let go and be here with your partner now. Take that kind of stuff, okay, sidebarring here, take that kind of stuff to your therapist. Literally write it down. It's like when this happens in this sense, this feels like a bigger pattern. That's totally valid. But when you're in the middle of the argument, you got to just communicate from the now. So you could say like, I want to relieve your distress, even if I'm the one distressing you. So I am with you now and there's no other thing more important to me than working this out with you now i'm hearing there's a bigger pattern that you want to discuss i'm committing now to talk about that in our next therapy appointment what is the need you have right now okay third one don't debate just meet the need so you want what is the best way Rhetorical question, what is the best way to extend an argument into hours or even days? I will give you the magic phrase. That's not what I said. That's not what I said. It doesn't really fucking matter, does it, my friend? Because, you know, in this scenario, now it's 4 fucking a.m., and you've got to like wake the kid up in two hours and get them ready for school. And you haven't even finished a presentation you're supposed to polish off last night that you're scheduled to deliver in the morning meeting at work because you've been at each other's throats circling the wild country of each of your abandonment wounds all night long. So like, if you hear yourself saying, that's not what I said, just like, seriously, shut the fuck up. That's not what I said, does not, oh my God. Just focus on the needs, yours and theirs. You could have a tape recorder and be listening to yourselves and realize maybe you said something that sounded an awful lot like that. That's how they're receiving it now. If you're at the point where you're saying, that's not what I said, you need to just down tools, right? If you want, later on, you can debate who did what and said what and started what and neglected what. But this moment is not the time. In an intimacy-based argument, once the distress cycle has been triggered, there literally is not the cognitive capacity available to even perceive, much less remember things accurately about what a person said or how they said it, what you said, how you said it. We're not perceiving things accurately. So lay that down. If you're just like having a bread and butter kind of argument about whether to order Chinese food or pizza, by all means, like break out a PowerPoint and your secret recordings. If you feel really passionately about the issue, feel free, take all your time that you want to get your point across. But if you are in a argument 
with your primary security, uh, secure attacher, this intimacy-based argument, meaning you are in a couple, and it's triggering habitual responses based in trauma, the details really, honestly, don't make a difference. It does not make a difference if you said that or didn't say that or you meant it or you didn't mean it. Neither of you, from a biological standpoint, are able to be like rational right now. So focus on the needs. Remember that the avoidant partner may be unaware of their needs and might need time or space to like identify and articulate them. You might need to lay this conversation down temporarily. Again, it's just biology, nothing personal. So take this opportunity to practice some self-regulation, both of you. Try to access the space within you where your capacity to give a shit about your partner's well-being <laughs> resides, even though, you know, they're wrong and you're right, even though you're fucking exhausted, even though you're not even sure this relationship is worthwhile anymore, just find that tiny little place within you where you do care about their needs and you do want to do what you can to fulfill their need for security. Because ultimately... In order for an avoidant anxious match to survive, I personally, and from experience, not just myself, but with clients, I believe two things have to happen pretty much simultaneously. And these, you know, some people aren't going to like this, but this is what I think. There's kind of a 1A and a 1B because they both have to happen at the same time. So A, the anxious partner has to learn how to self-regulate while the avoidant partner is taking space to process. And then B, the avoidant partner has to recognize that they are the ones who hold the power to pivot the relationship to a more secure place. And both partners have to want to evolve themselves towards a secure attachment style. The avoidant partner has to commit to growing her self-awareness and summon the will to intervene on behalf of the relationship when she notices she's withdrawing. She has to find the wherewithal to stop her pattern of isolating. She must learn how to both give and receive nurturance. She has to accept that needs are human and without them, she is not quite fully whole. And the anxious partner has to commit to developing self-soothing capacities while he gives his partner more space to feel safe and heard and that her needs are respected. He has to summon the patience to wait and quell the urge towards protest behavior. He also must recognize that she can't be his only outlet for nurturance and security in his life. He must learn to be both vulnerable and nurturing with other men, too. Attachment style is programmed, but thankfully, it's plastic. So thank you, neuroplasticity, if we can change our attachment style and become more secure. So if the anxious avoidant couple wish to remain together, but don't both address their abandonment wounds and work towards developing more secure attachment, then one partner is going to have to make a unilateral compromise on having their needs met and cross their fingers that they can outlive their days, that they can live out their days in that arrangement. Or maybe it's, this is again, sidebar, this is another option. They could say, I am going to lay down my needs for a year or two to presence, 
safeness and security in this relationship. And if I don't see the other person develop a desire to address their abandonment wounds, then I'm going to have to leave, right? Because like, and that's hard. I mean, best of luck with that, you know. Although most people will start with self-help books, I highly recommend you find a therapeutic practitioner who understands the complex ecosystem of abandonment, attachment, trauma, oppression, patriarchy, and takes a critical approach to the impact of patriarchal culture on relationships. Because quite frankly, I find a lot of the self-help books I've read to be quite problematic in their assumptions and normalization of patriarchal culture. I mean, the role of patriarchy is hardly even mentioned. It took me and Ruben six years of effort and thousands of dollars. And when I say six years, this is before 2017. So <laughs> way more before realizing that no therapist had ever even mentioned that patriarchy might be putting stress on our relationship. So I hope this article is a helpful start towards orienting away from each other as the source of your problems and placing at least some measure of blame on the culture itself. If you do that, you may find some shared consolation in the grief that comes after, after you realize how much hurt you've been causing because you've been hurt, because the culture is harmful. And there is much grief in feeling like a failure, which I pretty much feel every time we argue. But I'm coming to a place of solace within our shared grief. I know Reuben hurts as much as I do for the exact same reasons. Grief is a form of praise. Grief says, I care about this person, this relationship, and it has been lost or hurt or violated, and my heart is breaking. I love it that much. So sometimes when I feel like a failure because we're fighting, I can stop the fighting by allowing myself to just slip into grief. And Ruben understands that grief is a form of love. Sometimes the quickest way to stop our feud and get back to our love is to slip beneath the still surface of the well of grief. When we do that together, it feels easier to accept that this is just the best we could do this time. It doesn't mean that everything is lost. Just this time, this was the best we could do, even if it was crappy. <laughs> Ruben is not the type of person who spends too much time thinking about optimizing health or well-being, you know, when he has aches and pains or changes in his metabolism. He doesn't book in with the doctor or the naturopath. He doesn't like increases omega-3 fat intake or look into paleo diets. Instead, he just says to himself, this is just what my body's doing right now. And there's a kind of loving acceptance of what is. And lately, when I'm in that rare, bright moment of being able to flip the switch and respond to Ruben's needs in the heat of an argument, I started saying, this is just what we're doing right now. I've used his words so that when he hears me say them, in his mind and his body, he knows that they, what they mean at the deepest level. I don't have to say very much more to help soothe him because he instinctively knows that this is just what acceptance feels like. This is sucky, but this is just what we're doing right now. I've also started to physically move closer to him and touch him or sit in his lap as soon as I notice that I've reached a point of calmness because I know that's what he needs. I try to notice earlier in my process when I'm able to give him more of a lifeline. 
And sometimes the end point of these conversations is just to look at each other with sadness. There's no miracles of transcendence, but there's also no careening headfirst into the pit of despair either. Just a good-hearted acceptance of doing the best you can. And this is what it is right now. We accept that marriage isn't just hard, it's unfair. There are huge swaths of injustice that go both ways, but we still love each other. We witness each other's grief and rage and fear and wounds, and we learn how to feel those things without projecting them onto each other. We remember that our need for each other is a vital part of being fully human. And this is what we're doing right now. And that is the end of that. So I think it's time now to call Ruben back in and uh, have some final thoughts on how far we've come and how different things seem now, or maybe (laughs) how some (laughs) things are still happening even though we've been working on it so long. Um, what are your thoughts as we reflect on this and to our update on Portrait of a Marriage, Ruben? Uh, well, first off, Carmen, so um, you recorded that and I reread the uh, what you just recorded. Um, and let me say that is a, a tour de force of an article. <laughs> That's really, it's quite epic. So uh, good job. Thank you. It's hard to read because, of course, I would edit it so much and organize it differently now, today. It's, uh, it's a little bit too stream of consciousness for me. Mm. Um, could be more focused. Could be different parts. But anyway, I, I receive your compliment, Ruben. It was an ambitious share that I put out in the world. Yeah, and that's kind of what this little podcast series is about, right? Is to sort of like do some of that hashing things out and focusing for sort of a reissue Mm -hmm. an update Mm -hmm. so um yeah so good job thank you um also it's been uh a lot has happened since we last recorded um you've led quest it's i don't know it's been like a month or something probably Mm -hmm. maybe it's only been three weeks (laughs) seems like a long time since we were last recording it's true very long we've been to the mountain and back major pilgrimage we've done a lot of um you know that was that was a healing quest for us too because we were really sort of in the throes of another growth spurt in our relationship in uh 2019 the last time we led questers to um wilderness retreat and this was a chance to go back and and correct some of the things that maybe we didn't do so great mm-hmm. uh, as a couple at that at that time and um i will say i'm leaving feeling triumphant (laughs) if not jubilant because i don't have enough energy but i do feel victorious i feel like we did good we Mm -hmm. did great as a team Mm -hmm. and it required more community it required more help Mm -hmm. Uh, we had to reprioritize some things but um, Mm -hmm. we did great Mm -hmm. yeah that sheer um yes i agree and what you say of it requiring more community, I think, is really interesting because it strikes to uh, the point of capacity, mm-hmm. which I think is so, um, it just keeps being important. Mm-hmm. So, um, <clears throat> anyhow, we got to record this because um, we have a date to go swimming in the gorge. 
Yeah, it's summertime vibes here, and that's a big part of uh, maintaining connection is our shared rhythm mm -hmm. and our attunement with the natural world. And we have this great swimming hole, which is salt water, but it's like up a, what would you call the gorge? It's what it sounds a, like. I think it's, it's an inlet. Inlet. It's, it's a an very inlet. long inlet. And so it's salt water that's very warm, mm -hmm. and we like to, to go... Um, in the summers and now this summer different for us first time we've owned a vehicle in over 10 years over 10 years i don't know not 15 but over 10 years and now we have a little japanese mini truck little <laughs> fuel efficient little beep me meep, meep, as we go through town and a big part of our summer is um, connection with each other and with water and uh, so, yeah, we got to get this recorded. What are your mm -hmm. final thoughts, mister? <laughs> uh, well, I just want to wrap that up with a low tide has just passed. And so it's peak high temperatures in about an hour. Ooh. So, yeah. Okay. We'll make this succinct. That's the deadline here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what are my thoughts? So the, I was reading this, um, unfortunately, we're in the recovery period of a pretty ripping big fight that we had a few days after we got back. Yeah, I, I, let's contextualize. I very wisely scheduled us for couples therapy within days of getting back and then consistently for a few weeks. And again tomorrow. Yeah, again tomorrow. <laughs> and so we had a great couples therapy. We, we had a moment of frisson uh, the day before couples therapy where we had to kind of, we were, we're having like the pre-therapy conversation about what are we going to talk about. And that was sort of, we, we managed to like stay on track and stay together and connected. And then we went to couples therapy. It was really beautiful. And then the day after, um, I, I just, I had a fucking meltdown uh, feeling like I could not um, attend to an argument we were having. Mm -hmm. And so it was the first time in a long time that we had the kind of argument where the dysregulation uh, on both sides is so strong that neither of us could stop the argument from happening. Mm -hmm. um, well, I guess there's another thing we should talk about in that as well. But the, the thing that um, I was thinking about as I was reading this is um, we're in a place now <laughs> where we're actually not always on eggshells alert for... Uh, unhinged fights mm -hmm. and so that kind of oddly makes it a little harder to avoid uh unhinged fights because they're so kind of far between now that we actually absolutely lose it um that we're not on high alert so can i just clarify to make sure mm -hmm. i'm understanding so we have so few of the unhinged total dysregulation fights yeah that when they happen, they're really shocking and we're not as well practiced at being able to like slow and, and do the interventions. Is that what you mean? Yeah, but let me be more specific. You know, so there's, um, uh, from my perspective, <laughs> uh, just thinking about, so you have grown a lot. You've changed a lot over these years. And so the, um, the indicators that I used to look for of like, okay, I need to down tools because I can see that Carmen is like, we are not going to have a conversation here. Like this is not going to lead to a conversation. Uh, but you're better now at uh, us having conversations 
about things. You know, there's more regulation in your body and in our relationship, obviously in my body too. You can speak to that. Um, and so kind of my old danger signals are, um, complicated. They're, they are, they are, uh, more challenging. Um, and so in this fight, I was like, yeah, okay, we're having a conversation here. It's not very effective, but you know, we're having a conversation and, uh, we got much deeper into an actual, like, um, big fight before we were like, and we're downing tools, um, which is kind of a drag cheerful side really doesn't happen as often. That's true. Oh. Yeah. It doesn't happen as often that I'm like begging you to stop. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I guess maybe we've been lulled into this sense of <laughs> trust that it's like, yes, we can both stay really well regulated. And so the, the signs or even the direct requests, like mm -hmm. stop it, <laughs> we have to stop. Just, it wasn't really landing. Mm -hmm. Also, the bigger context is we, you have been burnt out for many months and I had just completed provisioning emotionally from like 6am to midnight, either, you know, questers or you or the team or, or others, even, you know, at times when we had Wi-Fi, my child, <laughs> it consistently for, um, a couple of weeks. And I was, I, I was not able to um, yeah, regulate and provision any more emotionally. Yeah, I, I think you downplay it by talking about the emotional provision for a couple of weeks because Quest is a major absorbing project for two months. Yeah. Like, do you think? Mm -hmm. So it's like, and it's maybe pretty close to the top of mind for a couple of months before that. Mm -hmm. So it's been two months that you have been in pretty intensive preparation. Mm -hmm. And then there's there's three and a half weeks of flat out you know you are attunement <laughs> yeah well and you were just going and you, work you yeah. were just pedal to the metal for hours mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah and literally of those two weeks it was you would get up at six in the morning and go to bed at midnight mm -hmm. every night for for two weeks mm -hmm. you know which is draining yeah, it's a lot. And so I wasn't able to like have the kind of normal back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, hey, I'm feeling dysregulated. I was more like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so the, the capacity, this is, this was the capacity link is mm -hmm. that just the, the capacity to regulate, to self-regulate and co-regulate uh, is just hugely impacted by everything that's happening in life. Mm -hmm. We have greater capacity, generally speaking, but also then when we are out of capacity, it's kind of surprising and shocking and uh -huh. we like backslide. We're like, yeah. what is happening? Because we've yeah. gotten used to a, a more effective metabolism there of stress, but then mm -hmm. it's just like, oh my God, I don't have it anymore. That reminds me of what a uh, collapse author called Ugo Bardi calls Seneca's Cliff, mm -hmm. which is the, uh, it's like, it's collapse happens slowly and then all at once is, mm -hmm. is the paraphrase. Yes. So yeah, we have a much longer incline and plateau of capacity. But mm -hmm. um, in these, you know, pandemic burnout, uh, intense work times, that cliff falls off quite rapidly. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So that was a bummer of a fight. That was a bummer of a fight just days ago. Yeah.
Yeah, and we're still recovering from. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your honesty, Ruben. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're just little mammals. Yeah, we're just little mammals just doing the best we can. Mm -hmm. Um, And so so we have to do things like shared rhythm. We have to get Mm -hmm. back into routine. I'm going to talk at the end about Contact Nutrition 101, but... um, the major evolution after this article in my attachment work has been moving away from the theoretical and more towards the very pragmatic and practical condensed down into contact nutrition, the five forms of contact nutrition, which is like kind eyes, vocal prosody, safe touch, shared rhythm, and ingestion behaviors. Mm -hmm. And I have relied on that as the glue in our relationship and with clients and with my work and friends and child and all of that, um, where I spend a lot less time talking about attachment theory these days and way more time focusing on the, the how-to of actual, mm-hmm. you know, attachment in practice, which we call contact nutrition. So, mm-hmm. um, so shared rhythm, it's like, oh, the rhythm of the, the gorge inlet <laughs> is that it's peak... Mm-hmm. You know, temperature is at this time, and so we're going to organize our days around both of us going and having a dip and cleansing and refreshing and, and being together. Um, mm-hmm. And it's the shared rhythm that brings us back into closeness with each other, mm-hmm. not talking about our fight. And being in shared rhythm with something larger than ourselves, like the tides. Thank you, Mr. <laughs> Secret Animist Inside. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, and speaking of capacity and rhythms larger than ourselves, mm-hmm. uh, I would like to talk about your menstruation. Oh, good. <laughs> okay, this is, let's say, very delicate, though, because yeah. I have, I am very reticent mm-hmm. to talk about the hormonal impact on relationships because it is so easily dismissed. Yes. Yeah. Uh, like, oh, my God, she must be on her period or whatever. Um, so let us also put strong containment on this yep. that Ruben has never <laughs> been allowed to uh, dismiss uh, my lived experience <laughs> as, oh, she's just bleeding right now. Yep. Um, that has never been okay. Yep. Um, and that said, we've noticed over the years mm-hmm. um, that there are times in my cycle when we were tracking the cycle where... Uh, it was helpful for you to know what my cycle was because mm-hmm. there are times where it, there I was just, there's no estrogen there. And estrogen is what makes us palatable and kind and mm-hmm. nurturing and nice. And if we were going to have an argument, it was probably <laughs> at this time when I was low on estrogen. Um, and uh, I think you probably found it helpful to oh, yeah. um, lay down your kind of more urgent need for lots of communication and soothing. Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, maybe we could even skip back. So, like, we had a really big fight years ago, um, and like, it, it was a really harmful fight. And I noticed that uh, you started spotting, and so I just started like keeping track. <laughs> for a little while and then I noticed that there was yeah okay so we had like I think I got up to three before I talked to you that we had like three bad fights and like two to three days later you would start spotting um and so then I talked to you and I was like hey maybe we should track your cycle <laughs> and so we started using clue the period tracker 
um, for, you know, tracking your cycle, which has now become uh, more useful as you are in perimenopause. I also found it useful because we could track how often we were having sex. Mm -hmm. And so you would be like, we're never having sex. And I was like, actually, we are averaging almost two times a week or whatever it was. And um, then I could also have like more of a fair assessment of mm -hmm. like, are we lacking in physical touch or is there touch happening? And then I felt reassured. Like I was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. happening. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so very, very useful. Uh, but Clue then allows, um, so I was able to sign into your account. So I had Clue on my phone and uh, my phone will give me alerts. I set up an alert. So it's like a few days before your expected period, I would get an alert being like, uh, I think I called it the, it was like, be on your toes or stay on your toes <laughs> yeah. or something like that alert. <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, I... Yeah, I want to be super clear that this is not a opportunity to dismiss what was happening. It was just that, you know, for I guess from my perspective, uh, you weren't looking at hormones so much then, but it was like you had reduced capacity in those times. Mm -hmm. So that was not the time to have a very energy demanding fight. <laughs> yeah. And when I look back now, being, you know, more of an avid student of perimenopause mm -hmm. in the last year, um, I look back now and I think of it as like, yeah, that is a physiological limit. Mm -hmm. Just like we have cognitive limits, mm -hmm. like we have time limits. Well, and you can only run so far and you can only lift so much. Yeah. There's physiological like, limits. Yeah. So there are emotional and relational limits mm -hmm. that are, you know, this is, this is why, you know, women would go to the mythical red tent or mm -hmm. whatever it was in their culture. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, there are times when we have to just down tools and I just did not have the patience or ability to um, provide as much presence yeah. for your needs at that time. Yeah. And I think, you know, if we look at what's happening in the body of somebody who's menstruating, with good reason, we are yeah. doing lots. And like, yeah. you know that in your mind, but until you start really tracking and noticing the impacts, um, it's easy to just dismiss as like, ah, this is just what people who menstruate go through and live with and it's not that big a deal and mm -hmm. i think um it was really good to have you tracking that yeah and so like to be clear it's not that we weren't having fights but w the way that i describe it is i noticed that we would have some fights that were intractable where there was nothing that could be done or said that would be at all useful <laughs> mm -hmm. there was no connection no benefit no furthering no progress no nothing it was just like this was an intractable fight and those aligned, those intractable fights aligned very well with your menstruation. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, now your period is much less um, consistent. It's much less regular. And so, you know, I'm not getting alerts from my phone anymore <laughs> about the intractable periods. And, you know, we just had a fight where it was an intractable fight and there was no good to be had from it. And it was um, the day I was bleeding. Yeah. I started bleeding hard. And I was like, why are you having needs right now when <laughs> I'm the one who's in pain and yeah. I need some co-regulation and I'm sweaty and bloody and I'm laboring hard and yeah. I'm exhausted. I just was, you know, it was like kind of a perfect example. Yeah. So, and so that, that's a shame that I didn't get an alert from my phone because then I could have been like, ah, yes, you do have needs. You need tea and a hot water bottle. And, right. You know. And you couldn't do that with just me telling you that. 
yeah, because again, I was at my capacity. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, signals were not being um, sent well or received well. Yeah. So, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay, so that's a legitimate thing to say mm-hmm. uh, and, and share. again, do not dismiss the period. <laughs> this is not a reason to... Well, uh, do not dismiss the whole person. Uh-huh. It's like, and so therefore, the thoughts I'm having aren't valid. It's just yeah. that, they're, yeah, they are intractable. They're, I, I can't negotiate with you mm-hmm. about these things, and I don't have some reservoir of generosity from which to draw whereas lots of the other times i do mm-hmm. um yeah but yeah so i i still feel a little shitty about it feels like a little bit like it has negated the last four episodes just landing that at the end uh, well then let's hive this off as a different episode or something um because it really shouldn't negate that at all, I think. Could you say more uh, to the male listeners out there then about, <laughs> um, you know, that you're not just spying on me to be like, oh, she's impossible at that time of month. Yeah, no, I'm spying on you in order to be a more devoted and loving husband. Uh, because, yeah, at that, you know, as you said, your body is doing so much. And so that's a time when I need to step up and do more for you. Like, it's that simple. So or do more like, for yourself. In terms yeah, or of do the more for myself. You emotional know, in order regulation. to do for you or whatever. Like however you want to think about that, mm-hmm. you know. But um, you know, definitely, I would say that it typically includes a lot more hot water bottles. So <laughs> you get a pretty regular hot water bottle anyway. But yeah, um, yeah, no. So this is not a, a reason. Like I, I think um, classically, like the fear you're afraid of is the dismissing that it's like your feelings are invalid. You are a weak and unsuccessful person. And hysterical. Yeah, and hysterical. You know, so it's like you're frail, you're useless, you're, you can't think, you can't It's mainly you're hysterical. (laughs) Right. You're crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, and uh, that just shows that our definition of crazy is bad. Mm Mm-hmm. So, because... Yeah, it's ableist and patriarchal. Yeah. Because you are um, just worshipping the moon. Yeah, well, and there's like valid... There's valid thoughts and feelings and rationale mm-hmm. between whatever my protest behavior was, yeah. but I just did not have the tools of co-regulation, which is kind eyes, vocal prosody, <laughs> some safe touch, yeah. like a willingness to, you know, that, that sense of you being in my care mm-hmm. was like, I can't, I need to be in someone's care right mm-hmm. now. And I need that to not just be hot water bottles. I need it to be emotional intelligence and mm-hmm. I need it to be you know, anticipatory action and I need it to be empathetic towards me and not centering, you know, your immediate needs. It's like, there's just stuff that I Mm -hmm. can't provide right now. So, um, anyway, I think, thank you for uh, any partner of a menstruator, you know, Mm -hmm. this is not an opportunity to dismiss. This is an opportunity to, uh, to care for this person who is in your care. Yeah. And I think also you've talked about in your research in um, myths of behavior change, like that we think like, oh, more education changes uh, behavior. Mm -hmm. And similarly in psychotherapy um, and couple therapy, there's this spoken and unspoken myth that more communication is always better. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a perfect example Mm -hmm. of the hard limits of 
talking and conversing and yeah. communication style. Like it, like nope, you need some co-regulation, and mm-hmm. one person sometimes have to has to like sacrifice in a compassionate way mm-hmm. for the moment. Mm-hmm. And maybe there are still intractable issues that, again, you would take to therapy, but you wouldn't be trying to get that immediate need met in that moment. You'd be mm-hmm. like, okay, we got to down tools on this. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I mentioned earlier that, like, Stan Tacken says, if your fight's going to take more than 10 minutes, it, you're, you're, you've already lost it, mm-hmm. both of you. you. you The body cannot stay in that fight, flight, freeze mm-hmm. on flop situation for more than like 15 or 20 minutes. So mm-hmm. I, I often share that with clients too, that it's like, you know, if you can sense that it's getting wild and you can't self-regulate, you should look at your clock. You need to mm-hmm. set a timer because you probably have five minutes to get out of that situation. Yeah. And if you're not out of it, ooh, now you're in it. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, neither of us had the capacity to look at the clock. No. In that fight. So, we couldn't. That so we was fought sucky. for a nice long time. Yeah. So it still happens, friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After all yeah. this time. Uh, mm-hmm. Other final thoughts you want to share before we, we wrap it up? Um, I don't think so. Looking forward to the gorge. Looking forward to, you know, your, <coughs> yeah, maybe uh, an, an updated version of the article. Mm. Um. How about you? Any final thoughts? Well, the updated version of the article is this kind of narrative journal that we've done in the last four episodes to kind of give people a sense of how it's going. But I would also say um, I we really do just focus a lot less on the theoretical, mm-hmm. and we really do focus on the very pragmatic, you know, building blocks, the nuts and bolts, you mm-hmm. know. I often say that contact nutrition is to attachment theory like vitamins to a healthy diet. It's like the building blocks of this um, ecosystem of mutual care and love and respect mm-hmm. and um, tenderness and attention that you're yeah. trying to create. So um, the next version of the article hopefully will be a book, mm-hmm. Contact Nutrition. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we will have lots of anecdotes to share. (laughs) Huzzah! (laughs) Huzzah! All right. Well, thank you for being willing to um, share and update all the folks, even though I know you're super exhausted. It was hugely generous of of you. And I know we've heard from a few people who've said um, this series is, well, they've used the language of like, it's saving our marriage Mm. because people can listen together. Yeah. That's very touching to me. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Feels worth it. So thanks for digging deep. Not worth it. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it feels good. (laughs) It feels good. Okay. I wish everyone the ability to avoid (laughs) all this worth it. (laughs) Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay, so my friends, the Numinous Network is uh, where we go from like talking about attachment to repatterning our nervous systems for greater capacity and security. Embodied attachment is woven into all the courses and the live events there. So you can do my attachment courses at your own pace because they're all on-demand videos. As I mentioned, I think Contact Nutrition 101 is what I would recommend as a starting place. Um, It takes attachment theory and it organizes it into super pragmatic 
um, and practical behaviors. So I think the how-to of co-regulation is like a great next step for people who want to move from attachment theory into embodied secure attachment in their relationships. Again, not saying it's going to save you from fighting, but it's going to save them from being devastating. And then you can also attend supportive live events to ask questions or receive coaching and support. Like we do monthly attachment jams where you can bring your current troubling situation and ask for some feedback or support from me. And we also have group somatics that happen several times a week, and that's deeper neurobiological repatterning. What I mean by that is like getting it into your nervous system, what safeness feels like, how to engender it in yourself and someone else. The Numinous Network monthly membership is available on a sliding scale, and you manage your own account so you can choose to stop and restart at any time with no admin hassle. Check us out at carmenspaniola.com where you'll find the Numinous Network in the main navigation at the top of the page. I also want to say, if you bought my book, The Spirited Kitchen, will you be so kind as to leave a review on Goodreads? My goal is 100 reviews and I'm currently stuck with a crappy review on the first page of Goodreads by someone who like clearly didn't read the book at all, which honestly feels really unfair. And I'm going to use the word dehumanizing because I actually appreciate their concerns. I think that their line of critique is valid. They hate white lady spirituality that's culturally appropriative and like bleedingly obvious information. And I hate that too. So it's really frustrating because if they'd done more than just like looked at pictures and skimmed the table of contents, they would have found what they said was lacking. They, I will say this, they still might have given me a low review for not emphasizing vegan eating and like, hey, fair play to them. You know, we would, we would probably very much disagree on the role of animals in regenerative food ways, but like that would seem more fair than what they wrote. Anyway, that's the truth of it. That's why Goodreads reviews are important to me because there's like a lot of really nice ones and then this one that sticks out because yeah. This person and I obviously both share concerns about settler colonialism in spirituality, and I would just like to be more fairly represented there. But please don't feel like you have to write an essay. I've had a few people say to me, oh, I'm still trying to compose it. I've almost, it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> just like literally two or three lines saying what you appreciated is really helpful for people who might buy it or gift it. And that's really the best thing you could do. So here's a perfect example of a great review by Alex who gave it five stars and they said, love, love, love this book. So many ways to read it. Read the historic bits, flip through the glorious pictures, focus on a season, look up recipes. I bought another as a gift and now I can't decide who will get it. May just have to purchase more. Alex Pitts, you made my day. And I also want to say, I checked out your reading list. I really like your reading list. I see you're currently reading my friend Angela's book, Love Notes to Grievers. Maybe you're a Numinous podcast listener. That would be great. Love your taste in book, Alex. And um, I, I just, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your review on Goodreads. It really means a lot to me. So thank you very much. Also, friends, I would love to hang out with you this summer. Our focus in the Numinous School in July is Astro Magic. And in August, it's connecting with and working with plants. So if your animus self comes alive in the summer season, you should come hang out with us in the Numinous Network. Um, I was talking at a tutorial recently about the four pillars of a spiritual life. That's study, mentorship, a practice, 
and a community to practice with. And you will find all four of those things in the Numinous Network. You can find us at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, come with me, Ruben. Take Take care. care.